Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health, and you are in for an amazing treat. Uh, We're being joined by Georgie Dinkoff, who is uh, just beyond amazing. He is, for those of you who don't know who he is and haven't encountered him before, he came to the United States in 1997 from Bulgaria, and he studied at Georgetown University to become an IT professional. Unfortunately, it was a hard time to find that because of the dot-com issues and such. Uh, so he had, he because he was at Georgetown, he was able to pick up uh, an IT job with a biochemistry department, not just any biochemist. He was at Georgetown, was as Johns Hopkins and the National Institutes of Health. So these guys were high level. And Georgie wanted to socialize, so he had to connect with them. Didn't have to, but chose to. And he just, the, the language of connection was biochemistry. So even though he has no, absolutely no formal academic training in, in health and, and medicine, he essentially, in my humble estimation has the equivalent of a PhD in molecular biology and then some. Um, so we are going to dive deep into the science. We really are. And uh, well, let, before I go into that, let me just explain that Georgie is an advocate of bioenergetic medicine developed by Ray Pete, really rescued him from his personal health problems. And, and we, we, I, he was, he's uh, discussed that story on a previous episode. So, um, and it did, it did a lot for him. So he, he basically learned the biochemistry by himself, which is an amazing testimony to that you can do this yourself. And the reason I want to share that is so critical you understand this because the information is there. All you have to do is put in the time and effort. And here's the best thing. It doesn't cost anything. It's for free. You can just watch it. And that I just want to share with you what I've been doing this year, pretty much Every day this year, I've listened to two to three hours of Georgie's podcast. You say, are you nuts? No, because almost every time I listen to him, and I, many of the podcasts I listen to two, three, four times because there's so much information. And my nickname from Georgie from the last time is the fire hydrant because he's just a, mount, a flow of incredible insights. So this information is there. And I'm going to put links in here to, to show you how to configure Google or YouTube actually, so that you can bring up all his interviews and, and, and chronologically sort them. And you can do the same thing I've done. So I've learned so much this year. He's just opened my eyes to so many foundational basics because, you know, I was one of the key catalysts for promoting keto. It was me. I mean, I wrote the book Fat for Fuel, which was the number one book sold in the United States with the week it was launched. It was number one, more than any other book sold in the United States. So and I was doing the best I could. Every day I wake up, I'm just so excited to learn more information. <laughs> and I listen to Georgie. I listen to him by the podcast. I li- and I don't listen to double two X. I'm listening to single X. And some of his podcasts, largely because of his accent, you know, it's just, it's from Bulgaria. So it's a little bit more difficult to pick up. And he talks so fast. So I have to listen to 0.75 uh, to get it. But boy, and it's, and I'm a lot of times I'm learning new things and just reinforcing it and seeing it from a different perspective. And I think you might have the same thing. So anyway, all that large introduction to let you know that this may seem enormously complex and there's a lot of complexity to it, but the foundational truths are pretty basic. And once you get them and you apply them, your, your metabolism, which is the whole crux of what Ray's work is is improving your metabolic rate and your metabolism and getting your mitochondria, which is largely responsible for controlling that, to run the way that we're like. Like it's a like you've got this super engine in each and every one of your cells, and it, and it's and it's not working well because it's given dirty fuel and you know it just messes it up and it's and it's not running like it should. But it can with some simple tweaks, you can make magnificent things. So, with all that. Massive introduction. I can't thank you enough and welcome for joining us, Georgie. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me again. Hopefully the information we put out there is useful and people can improve their health. So from our very first conversation, what literally blew my mind was the information you shared about cortisol. Of course, 
everyone knows about cortisol. We've certainly taught about it in medical school. And if you look it up, you'll see that cortisol is responsible for glucose homeostasis is what they typically, for regulating your glucose levels. But they, you know, well, that's true. It really doesn't explain what it does. It's a rescue hormone and it's a primary function. It's a glucocorticoid. It means it's the first part of it is glucose. That's what it does. It increases your glucose levels because if you go too low, you will go into hypoglycemic coma and you are dead. So it's it's a rescue hormone and thank God it's available. Uh, it's only secondary component is an anti-inflammatory. So what Georgie explained is that when your glucose levels drop, you have to do this and to shred your protein. It's just, it's a it's a very highly anti-catabolic protein. And I was listening to one of your podcasts this morning, Georgie, where you explained that um, the primary benefit of anabolic steroids to build your muscle mass is that it's anti-cortisol. That's how it works. It's like, oh, what would it know? You would have thought it had some direct action on the the, the muscles directly, but no, it's anti-cortisol. It's like mind blown again. This is another mind blown. So that that does this, but it's also the primary driver for aging. It is the it is the hormone responsible for accelerating your aging process. Yep. And you know, one of the things, the reasons I got into this, and most people are biohackers, is that they want to throttle that down, throttle it back, so you're slowing the aging process. Yet virtually no one, and I know almost every major leader and thought leader in this space, and I've never really heard anyone talk about this. This is this is like mind-blowing information. So with all that massive <laughs> introduction, I don't think I've ever given a longer introduction before an interview to anyone, but this is going to be a long interview, so it's, it's worth it just to frame it. So why don't you comment on what I just said? <laughs> I mean, I fully agree. I think there is hardly a chronic condition where where you you cannot look at the condition and don't see cortisol implicated. And usually, in majority of cases, it is elevated cortisol versus the low cortisol. In fact, the only situation we have low cortisol and it becomes problematic is probably Addison's disease, which is truly adrenal failure, and that's rare, uh, very very rare. In fact, the only known per- the only high profile person that I know that had it was President Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, and he took for life, I think he took uh, cortisol injections, um, you know, every couple of days. But for everybody else, now, if you look at John F. Kennedy, even with even with those injections, um, he basically was in a state of relative cortisol deficiency. But if you look at him, he looks remarkably young and handsome, even, you know, you know, not that he was very old when he became president and killed, but he looks younger than what other people at this age look like. And especially people at this age that are, if you look at them these days, they're going to go, they're, they're going to look on average a lot older than, than JFK. And um, studies as far back as the 1950s and the 60s demonstrated that you can produce every single phenotype of aging if you inject cortisol or at least create a state of relative uh, glucocorticoid excess in the animal. So you can do that either by injecting um, synthetic or natural uh, glucocorticoids, or you can do it by reducing uh, the levels of the natural anti cortisol steroids in the body, and those are pregnenolone, progesterone, DHEA, but in males, testosterone, and also dihydrotestosterone. So if you if you reduce the levels of those anti-cortisol uh, steroids and keep the cortisol levels normal uh, as they are in the animal, you will still achieve the same kind of like the phenotype of aging. And that's actually pretty much what happens to people as well. Uh, it has been shown that the cortisol levels do not decline with age unless you really have adrenal failure, uh, while the levels of all of these anti-cortisol youth-promoting hormones declines with aging. Pregnenolone, DHA, progesterone, by the time you're 80, their levels are at about 20% of what they used to be when you were in your 20s. Um, so really what happens is that cortisol stays the same, but the relative Basically, your relative state of cortisol increases because there's nothing to oppose the cortisol that is already there. Um, and multiple intervention studies have demonstrated if you administer um, agents that that oppose cortisol, block it at the receptor level, or reduce its synthesis, you can achieve really good, um, you know, both health results and also the way you look. Um, the anabolic steroids are probably the best known example. It's really a, a misnomer because they're not anabolic. They're actually anti-catabolic. 
Um, muscle has one of the highest expressions of the glucocorticoid receptor through which cortisol shreds the muscle. It binds to the receptor and increases a number of different proteolytic enzymes. I did not know muscle is the highest. It is? Really? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and gastrointestinal tract and brain. So these are the three places wow. where, where the receptor is the highest. So, so cortisol if, actually imp or shreds your brain tissue too? Exactly. And and it wow. causes massive brain atrophy. And it's been well established for the last five decades that cortisol can actually cause depression. People with depression have smaller brain mass and brain volume than people that don't have depression. Uh, this was one of the probably one of the most convincing arguments uh, to classify depression as actually as a, as a, a physiological condition, in addition to being purely mental as well. Uh, they looked at MRI scans of people with depression. And they saw they have, depending on how severe the depression is and for how long it went untreated, these people had much smaller brain volume and a number of brain cells as well, number of neurons. Um, so they said, okay, uh, can we? form the hypothesis that maybe cortisol can cause depression if it's chronically elevated. Let's test it. Let's administer an anti-cortisol medication to animals and people and see what happens. Within 48 hours of the glucocorticoid blocker RU486 being administered to people with clinical treatment-resistant depression, they experience remission. So I think it's a very good argument that cortisol is catabolic to the brain. And clearly, if it's catabolic to the brain, it's probably not going to improve your mood. If anything, it's going to worsen it. Yes. Well, thank you for that. And I think, so ultimately, as I mentioned, when your blood sugar level drops, that's a trigger for you to increase cortisol. This is the last thing you want to do. Really, one of your primary goals in, in achieving optimal health is to literally limit your the elevation of your cortisol. Much more dangerous than sugar level elevation, which almost everyone is focusing on. They've got monitors, you know, the, the 24-7 glucose monitors, uh, continuous glucose monitors called CGMs, that you can wear and pretty much every five to 10 minutes, you're going to get a reading because they're so concerned how dangerous glucose is. But that's not the issue. The issue is cortisol. Yep. And fats, right? So if you if your blood glucose yeah, well, is rising, they're connected. connected. The That's is, what we're going to talk about. They're yeah. They're connected. So so instead of asking, okay, is glucose, is elevated blood glucose a symptom or a cause of the pathology? So far we've only been told that hey, high blood high blood glucose is the devil. You gotta do everything in your power to lower it. However, all of the drugs on the market, especially the more recent ones that actually target lowering HbA1c, the glycated hemoglobin, uh, all of them increase all-cause mortality. So clearly messing directly with the levels of blood glucose, it's not something you want to do. Um, you may temporarily you know, decrease the biomarker, the glycated hemoglobin, but it does not mean you're getting healthier. Uh, there was a famous Harvard medical professor who said that the moment a biomarker becomes a goal, it ceases to become, it ceases to be a biomarker. So you're starting to chase something that's just a symptom. And unfortunately, for many conditions, simply because medicine says that is they don't know what the cause is, then you're you you're kind of relegating yourself to symptomatic treatment. Um, and that's really what most of these blood glu blood glucose lowering drugs do. Um, they may lower your blood glucose, but they may kill you in the long run faster than what than the elevated blood glucose would have done by itself. Yeah, we won't go into details. Maybe we will, but metformin being a classic example. It's yeah. been used by many, many people. Relatively safe. It's a, an extract of a natural product, but it, it it is basically a mitochondrial toxin. Yep. And, and it's and it's going to make you or your health decline <clears throat> long term. So, uh, having said all that, Georgie, I just want to make it clear that we are not saying that it is not important if your blood glucose is elevated, yeah, but absolutely. it's a symptom. It is not the, it, you don't want to hit that directly. You want to address the fundamental foundational cause and then everything else comes into place. And just to give you an example, when on my first interview with you, I was still relatively high fat, 70, 80% fat. And now I realized that wasn't a good structure. Fortunately, I could tolerate it, but I didn't have too many bad side effects, but it wasn't optimizing my health. Now I am down to like 27% fat. And like 57, 58% carbohydrates. And so having said that, you say, oh my gosh, you must be diabetic or something. No, I lost five pounds more. I really was a healthy body weight. And my blood sugar, I just had it been done. It went down, my fasting blood sugar went down 10. So, you know, it's not, that's just to me, personal anecdotal proof that it, it's not the carbohydrate ingestion. It's that what's happening at the mitochondrial level. And to help us understand that, I created a graphic because 
this science can get somewhat complex when, when Georgie describes it. And I just thought having a, a simple graphic, now you can look at this, it looks complicated, but when we discuss it, it will be okay. So basically it shows that you only have two primary fuels that you, you can burn in your body as food, and that's fats and carbs. And uh, the fats are broken down from a process called beta oxidation and ultimately wind up going to acetyl-CoA, which gets fed into the Krebs cycle. Now, carbs are different chemical structures. So they are a six-carbon molecule. And they're, when they're broken down, they break down to pyruvate. Mm-hmm. And this is really important because pyruvate then can also turn into acetyl-CoA, but it, it has to be uh, enzymatically changed through an enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase, PDH, or some people call it PDC, pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. So when this complex or the enzyme itself is inhibited, we've got major problems because glucose can, you know, the the substrate pyruvate cannot go into electron transport exchange. And instead it has to go backwards, not really backwards, but to another pathway, a primitive pathway, the one that all the, the central single cell organisms have, bacteria and such. And that is glycolysis, where it essentially anaerobically ferments that fuel to create energy. And it's very inefficient. It doesn't create a lot of ATPs. And and the lactate molecule itself, when produced in large quantities systemically as a result of glucose being shunted, will um, cause wreck havoc with your system. Your body has a metabolic switch. In many ways, a switch is a switch very similar to the one on a railroad track where the train comes along and then you throw the switch and it goes down a different track. It can only go down one track at a time. You can't do, the train can't split itself in two and go down both tracks. So there's a switch. And actually this switch has a name. It's called the Randall cycle. This essentially describes a process where your tissue can only burn one fuel at a time. It can't burn fat and glucose at the same time. And glucose is the same, is a synonym for sugar. So the, the threshold appears to be, and this is different for different people, but it's about 30%. And what do I mean? If your fat level is above 30%, then you're not going to be able to take that sugar, that glucose, and run it through your mitochondria, which is a small organelle within almost every blood cell in your body, except for the red blood cells, that is pr- produces cellular energy in the form of ATP. That's the way, that's really be the, one of the primary differences between uh, higher order organisms and lower order ones like bacteria. They don't have mitochondria, we do. And it's very efficient at creating energy. However, if your fat level is over, fat content, the percentage of fat that you're consuming in your diet is over 30%, then this sugar is backed up and it can't go through the mitochondria. It has an alternate source. That alternate source is called glycolysis and essentially is very inefficient. You can take one molecule of glucose and you only make two, two ATP, that's it. And it also doesn't require oxygen. And then... So we think, well, that's great. It's not going to create many reactive oxygen synthesis. Well, it's actually quite to the contrary because it's so inefficient. It's going to create a lot more reactive oxygen species. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So if your fat level is under 30%, and in some cases where you know, there's some pretty severe metabolic inflexibility like obesity or diabetes, that level may have to decrease to 15 to 20%, which is pretty extreme. That's a pretty low fat diet. I don't think it ever really should go under 10%, but the lower you can go, the better that you can tolerate. Usually meal or diets under 10% fat are going to be very hard to tolerate. They're just, there's, it's just not doable for most people. But if you, but the threshold appears to be 30%. If you have less than 30% of your total calories as fat, then the glucose that you're ingesting can be used efficiently in your mitochondria. And we'll talk, there's some different ways uh, that you can burn that even within the mitochondria if if your fat is less than 30%. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But that's the primary principle is you've got to get the fat level right first, first and foremost. And then you can hope that you're going to have a chance of burning this. The ideal ratio is not really known, but the epidemiological studies kind of show that about an equal percentage in terms of calories is probably is probably optimal for long-term health, unless wait, you're wait, trying wait, to equal, tackle equal, a specific. Equal of fats and carbs? 
Uh, no, no, I'm saying 33%, 33%, 33% oh, for a healthy person. He, no, here's where I would respectfully, very respectfully disagree because, and that's in the whole other discussion is the protein. And I've got so many insights from you, but you you want, most people don't get enough, but you can get too much. So third, like in my case, you know, if I have some kidney challenges because of mercury fillings that I had removed incorrectly 30, over 30 years ago. And uh, as a result, I have to be really, really, really careful. So, you know, I think, and I think most people, you, you, you've been, I've heard you say before that you, you don't really need a lot more than 120 grams. Most people, because no. you just can't burn like after 30, 40 grams at a meal, you're, you're not getting much benefit and yeah. you just have, you're just a burden on the kidneys. And if I already had compromised kidney function, it's a challenge. So, so if you, if you have to go, I think for most people, it's about 15% protein. And, and that level stays the same. What the, the real challenge for everyone is to figure out the, the, the balance between carbs and carbs fats. And fats. Yeah, That's agree, the key thing. Yeah. Once you understand what your protein level, that doesn't change. You pretty much should have the same amount of protein continuously. matter. The only other thing is to figure out what's the fat, what's the carbs. That's a central argument or not a central challenge for everyone to figure out. Yep. So, so for the protein, in fact, it's uh, the, I think we have a pretty good idea. It's about one gram per kilogram of lean body mass. So it's not used to be, uh, uh, you know, FDH increments, I think like 0.5, which I think is too low, uh, but also one gram per kilogram of body weight turns out to be too much for some people too, because a lot of the, a lot of your, your, your tissue, which is fat tissue is not metabolic active with the protein that you ingest in. So it's really mostly for the, for the lean muscle mass that you ingest in this protein. And for most people, let's say they're about 20% fat. And another, you know, significant percentage bone. So you're about like 0.7 grams per kilogram of body weight is probably what you need to be striving for protein-wise. Now for fat, um, you know, basically the, um, I, I guess the level at which the fatty acid oxidation will compete with the glucose oxidation and 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 kind of like shut it out uh, is different for different people and depends mostly on actually on the endocrine balance. Um, if you look at older people. Uh, they say they have the so-called, uh, and sick people as well, they have metabolic inflexibility. So if you give them a meal that, that that's comprised of equal calorie, a number of calories of carbs and fats, they're going to oxidize most of the fats and the, the carbohydrates will go, you know, un, unmetabolized. So they will raise their blood glucose and also the lactic acid, which is the byproduct of unsuccessful of the fermentative carbohydrate utilization. Um, so I guess you need to play, I guess you need to play with a ratio, but I've, I've noticed that uh, between 15 and 20% is probably where most people in their current health state are, uh, at which they can metabolize the fat without causing problems through the rental cycle, rental cycle for the glucose. Diabetic people, uh, who, uh, especially type two diabetes, they have, uh, you know, most of them are, are overweight. In fact, most of them are obese. They have, which means they have a plenty of supply of fat. In fact, they have two sources of fats uh, of supplying fat: one through the diet, and a second one through their from their fatty tissue, um, basically because it, it uh, there's always some uh, process of lipolysis uh, going on, which means shredding the fatty tissue and supplying the the rest of the body with the fatty acids from your fatty tissue. So they have two supplies, two sources of fat. Uh, so for diabetic people, they probably a good idea to lower the intake of fat from the diet because they already have a lot coming from their own bodies. In fact, there's many clinics around the world that treat and even cure type 2 diabetes by putting diabetics on this really restrictive diet until they lose most of their fat and then suddenly the metabolism of glucose gets restarted. So I think this directly shows you that the problem with the glucose wasn't the glucose itself. It wasn't the glucose that was fattening them up and the glucose that's causing the problems, but they had too much fat in their bodies. Once you get rid of that fat, no matter how you do it, you can do it through fasting. You can do it through uncoupling agents such as dinitrophenol, which raises your metabolic rate, right? Once you get rid of the fat, the, the, the problems with metabolizing glucose disappear which to me is a great testament to the Rendo cycle. So for healthy people, um, I think they can probably intuitively gauge. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's stop there. Once you get rid of the fat. So that means mm -hmm. fat being ingested or fat being released through lipolysis or there's a yes. percentage of body fat that you have. I and mean, what, what, what are you specifically referring to? So there's always some baseline lipolysis going on. And yeah. in, in, the, in the rested state, your muscles actually prefer to oxidize mostly fat. 
Um, so if you have a, a decent amount of muscle mass, you can actually burn most of this fat through the baseline lipolysis by simply resting and pr preferably raising the amount of lean muscle mass you have. The, the ratio of lean muscle mass to total body weight is the primary determinant of your basal metabolic rate. So it's very important to not lose lean muscle mass. I think a lot of people get themselves in a situation where through extreme fasting or extreme exercise, they're losing a lot of body weight, but they're not paying attention to, to how much they're losing of each of the two components, fat mass and lean muscle mass. And multiple studies have shown that, you know, over a long-term fasting or a long-term exhaustive exercise, such as the show Biggest Loser, these people lost a lot of body weight but about 80% of that was lean muscle mass. So by the time they were done with the study, they were much leaner, but their basal metabolic rate was much lower than what they started with because they lost most of their muscle mass. So when they quit the show, they went back to their normal lives and stayed on a reduced calorie regimen. They still regained all of their weight and they were devastated. They said, how is this possible? I went through hell to lose all this weight, and now I'm actually living in a slightly less of a hell because I'm still restricting my calories, and I'm back to my previous weight. In fact, I overshot it. Most people actually that were part of the study overshot their weight, and it was a study associated with it and said, well, of course, what do you expect? Your basal metabolic rate went down by 50%, 5-0. .0. So you, unless you stay on this severely restricted calorie diet, you will regain all of these pounds. So really the important thing is maintain muscle mass, uh, restrict a little bit of the dietary intake, um, and, and don't overshoot with the lipolysis. Every time you stress yourself, you're going to increase this rate of lipolysis. And if you flood too much fat into the bloodstream, you will shut down the glucose oxidation. And yeah. that will contribute to the lactic acid and all the other uh, downstream effects that you mentioned. So and this is the uh, the classic and widely held belief that the, the simple summary of conventional medicine's view about how for weight loss, and that is calories in, calories out. You know, which nothing. I mean, there's some kernel of truth to that, but it, the, the details really to destroy that as being an effective way because that, that what's not integrated into that equation is the metabolic rate. Exactly. And it is totally controlled by the the, the, the concentration of the foods that you, the macronutrients that you're consuming. So question on the Randall cycle, um, because I, I think you're in agreement that the fat, normally the fat content should be below 30% to sh make sure that you're primarily, that the healthy carbohydrates you're ingesting, and we'll talk about that in a moment, are shifted to the mitochondria burn uh, in the electron transportoid correctly with very minimal. This is, this is we're going to talk about reductive stress next. And you just sent me an email this morning that blew my mind three times. Because <laughs> I, because well, we'll talk about that when we next. But, uh, but that is, you know, really radically shifted my mind as to what was the most efficient and cleanest burning fuel. And it, it is glucose going through the mitochondrial transport chain because there's virtually there's almost no reactive oxygen stress if, if it's if you do that which is really the the key to what you know a lot of science believes is the damaging this is, is oxidative stress so anyway the question on the randall cycle is is it is it the is it the organism level that percentage of, of fat concentration is it throughout the day is it through each meal and is that cycle shifted in each mitochondria or is the cell level or the tissue level so i, I would want to dive into some of the specifics of where is that control mechanism and you know i think ideally you probably want it certainly the average for the day should be that but should you also mm -hmm. go to the effort of seeking to have that ratio of not more than 30 percent at each meal so uh, different tissues have different preference for the amount of fat versus the amount of glucose they burn. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the muscles at rest, but not at, at, during activity, prefer to burn predominantly fat. Uh, the brain prefers to burn predominantly glucose. And in fact, now they're saying that the, the reason the ketogenic diet is beneficial for things like epilepsy, it, it's because it has a glucose sparing effect. There is something about the, the brain of epileptic people that don't utilize glucose as much. By the way, they do produce a lot of lactic acid as well, which means they're not metabolizing, which means they need, they need a lot more of it. And by giving them a little bit of ketones, they can basically get by on fewer amount, you know, on a lesser amount of glucose. So the brain prefers to, to burn glucose. The reproductive system prefers to burn glucose. Uh, the gastrointestinal tract prefers to burn glucose. I think the liver 
it's it's kind of like it can go both ways. You can actually pr- produce, you can use lactate uh, to convert back into glucose and then oxidize that. Mm-hmm. You can oxidize fat, right? Um, but the different organs have different preferences. And I, I think the best way to kind of like to gauge whether you're eating too much fat is cognitive function. If you're mm-hmm. eating too much fat to the point where you're basically, uh, you know, interfering with glucose metabolism, you'll start getting the so-called brain fog. Uh, your, your thinking process will slow. You'll start like basically, you know, spend more time searching for words. Your reaction time, coordination time will basically decrease. Um, uh, you, you'll kind of feel out of it, out of it a little bit. And that's actually notorious for people with type 2 diabetes and even type 1 diabetes. Uh, their cognitive symptoms are overwhelming to the point that sometimes some of these people basically saying that there are certain days they cannot get out of the house because they feel like if they get in the car, they're going to crash it. Or if they go to a meeting, uh, they can't even, you know, compose the normal set of words that they want to, that they need to compose in order to actually get through the meeting. Um, so brain fog is a great one. I think a sleep quality is another great uh, example of whether you, you're, you're consuming the wrong ratio of macronutrients. Um, uh, also exercise capacity. So if you're always catching your breath and you're feeling fatigued all the time, that is actually a great sign slash symptom of elevated lactic acid. Um, and in fact, many different interventions that lower lactic acid are used as performance-improving substances. Uh, vitamin B1 being one of the niacinamide also being a great one. We're going to talk about this later, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, I guess I guess the goal would be is to eat the, the fuel with each meal, probably different macroration nutrients depending on the time of the day. I would say eat the more he- fat-heavy meals earlier in the day, breakfast and maybe lunch, and then eat the more carb-heavy meals at night because your brain and many of the other organs will really need that. Um, it's it's very common that if you don't consume sufficient amount of carbs before going to bed, you will have trouble sleeping. Uh, people on high-protein diet know that it's notorious, but they shouldn't be on the diet to start with. Uh, but you know, people on a high-fat diet also have problems with sleeping. And I think one of the reasons is that if you don't consume sufficient amount of glucose, you will, of course, raise cortisol at night and elevated cortisol at night, which, by the way, it's already higher than, than what it should be. The cortisol is lowest at around 3 or 4 p.m., and it starts rising with, with, mm-hmm. with, the, with, the, with the coming darkness. And its cortisol is highest at around 6 to 8 a.m. in the morning. So it keeps rising from about... 4 to 5 p.m. on the previous day until 8 o'clock in the, in, uh, in the morning of the next day. But if you don't consume sufficient amount of carbs, that, that cortisol will be like that much higher, up to 40% higher. There was a study that measured the cortisol level of people on a, on low-carb diets and found them to be not statistically significant different than people with Cushing syndrome. So basically mm-hmm. people that do not eat sufficient amount of carbs at night before going to bed. Um, and, and I think to me that, that to me that's probably the the, the greatest uh, you know uh, uh, example is that because sleep quality can determine so so much more than just what you're going to feel the rest of the next day. Uh, people with sleep disturbances are known to have much higher rates of every chronic disease out there: cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. In fact, now they call it the shift worker disease. People that are now working these night shifts are uh, suing various governments around the world and saying these night shifts are killing us. You need to pay us. 10 times more because we need to compensate. Well, they are. That's well documented. That's well yeah. documented. And, and I think the reason is they basically they work throughout the night when they should be resting. Their cortisol is higher when they're actually active because at least when you're asleep, cortisol doesn't have to maintain an additional activity, which if there's no fuel, the cortisol basically, you know, basically if you're awake during the night, the cortisol has to be that much more higher to shred your muscles and provide you with initial glucose. But even without the extra activity, if you're not consuming sufficient carbs at night, you will have problems sleeping and you will wake up, you know, feeling unrested and probably jittery the next morning because cortisol and adrenaline will be too high for comfort. Okay. Well, you just walked into one of my three dozen or more questions I compiled since the last time I interviewed you, because I've been, I've been keeping a track of myself for this business interview. So there is a lot of evidence, Sachin Pandit being one of the primary researchers out of California at the Salk Institute, that suggests that there's great benefit to not eating three to four hours before you go to sleep, to essentially enhance autophagy, regeneration, repair mechanisms. So I think there's probably still some value to that, but I just want to tease out the details with you because it would, it would seem from my perspective that you don't want to eat a big meal before you go to bed. So, but there's still this issue. And I, I think I violated this rule that I, I thought it was no calorie. So, but just from just what you said, it appears that there's some value to eating some clean carbohydrates. And that's going to be yes. the next question we discuss is what is a clean carbohydrate before you go to bed? So I'm wondering if you could talk about any potential impairment 
for autophagy and regeneration response with respect to the timing before bed? And what is the, the I, I imagine clean carbohydrate would be like honey or maple syrup or some, some even some fruit. But what, what is the quantity and the timing before you go to bed? So a couple of things on autophagy. I know it's the hot thing right now, uh, yeah. just like AMPK activation. I had mm -hmm. a recent blog post about that. Both AMPK and autophagy, and by the way, AMPK promotes autophagy, are actually implicated in cancer. You don't mm -hmm. want, you do not want to mess with autophagy too much. Uh, it has a lot of beneficial effects in terms of getting rid of dead or metabolically mm -hmm. deranged tissue. However, if you do have an already present form tumor. Uh, autophagy and AMPK can actually drastically increase it, its aggressiveness and promote metastasis. Um, number one. So, so let's say you do want to increase autophagy. I think it's a bit of a myth that eating what will somehow suppress autophagy below a and put it at a suboptimal level. Mm -hmm. I sent Dr. Saladino several studies demonstrating that actually several of the of the carbohydrates are autophagy enhancers. Fructose is. Trefalose, <laughs> which is a fungal sugar. Yes, it is. <laughs> sucrose <laughs> is. Fructose yes. sucrose enhance, in, in, increase autophagy. Who yeah. would have known? Who would have known? Yeah, S same God. to the link that, similar to the link that I sent you. Cortisol increases inflammation, right? If you say this yeah, in yeah. a medical school, they'll probably throw you out. They'll say you're out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what is the quantities? And, and what, what do you find? You know, there, I know it's a range, the timing. Is it like right before bed? Is it an hour before bed? I would say an hour before bed because if you eat, if you eat a meal that's too high in carbohydrates, basically you can get uh, there's the infamous fructose malabsorption. There's mm -hmm. only a certain amount of carbohydrates that your gastrointestinal tract can absorb per um, per unit of time. So you need about an hour or two before basically the meal, if it's composed of simple carbohydrates. God forbid you ate the resistant ones, because then you <laughs> we'll have... talk about that next. Yeah, then you've been about an hour to two hours for people with really slow digestions to get these things into your bloodstream. And then I think at that point, you can, you'll probably be fairly relaxed at that point and you'll naturally be, you know, inclined to fall asleep. Now, if you're eating the resistant starch, then you're basically, you're going to have this issue of uh, endotoxin buildup and you're going to have the so-called restless leg syndrome. For a long time, they, uh, the medicine has been mystified by this condition, and it, they, but they've noticed that people who eat resistant starches have a higher incidence of restless leg syndrome. Uh, why would that be? And then one scientist said, well, okay, so it's probably something to do with the bacteria because these people always complain of bad digestion uh, you know, uh, uh, at night. So they administer drugs that block either the TLR4 receptor, which is the endotoxin receptor, or they gave them the dopamine agonist known as pramipexol, which also turned out to be blocking many of endotoxin's effects. In both cases, the restless leg syndrome disappeared. So, so the issue with basically, uh, you know, being jittery and not being able to relax at night has to do with two things, either uh, increased inflammation due to the increased endotoxin coming from your gastrointestinal tract, if you eat non-easily digestible foods, and or the subsequent elevation of cortisol, which is already high because it's at night, right? The cortisol has to keep you alive. Don't let blood sugar drop too low. So, but if you're eating a resistant starches, then you're going to raise cortisol even more. So you have high inflammation and high cortisol going throughout the night. And I think most people who eat primarily resistant starches, especially the vegan types, um, the, the, if you go to the message boards on the internet, they're notorious for complaints of like, okay, I love this diet. I lost a lot of weight, a lot of weight on it but it's really destroying my sleep. What can I do about it? And so far, based on what I've seen in these message boards, nobody has really proposed any solution simply because I guess that it's kind of like not kosher to admit that eating certain type of carbs, is going to mess up your digestion, uh, which is fairly well established in the research circles. It's just not very well widely publicized. Yeah. So this is another huge, massive, important concept that people need to understand, because when they first, when, in the introduction, I mentioned that I'm, I'm eating about 60% of my diet is carbohydrates, but it's not just any carbohydrates. You have to be very, very specific and people think you can just throw, up, throw them on there. And uh, no, you can't. And especially when the Randall cycle is activated towards fat burning, because if you have, if you're, my experience clinically and from what I read is that if you're fat intake is over 40% and you throw these carbohydrates on there, you're going to, I'm going to disrupt yeah. your lipoprotein profiles. Yeah. You're going to increase your risk for heart disease. You're going to shoot out triglycerides by, because you, you're not metabolizing the carbs yep. and, they, and, they, and it's going to disrupt your life, your lipoprotein. So you do not want to do that. The fat has got to be below 
35%, you know, somewhere in that range. So, but anyway, the carbs are not just for this restless leg syndrome at night. This is for the whole day. You want to eat the right types of carbs because this endotoxin is a huge deal driving increased cortisol levels and inflammation in the body with the endotoxin and serotonin. It's, it's massively. So you've got to, so what we talk about this resistant starches. So why don't you expand a little bit? And I have some questions about some of the healthy carbs that are, that are tip that are grains or, or tubers like uh, potatoes and rice that probably don't qualify and can be safe carbs, but not quite as good as, as uh, the ripe fruits. Just three days ago, uh, basically mainstream media admitted that endotoxin drives obesity and diabetes. I thought I would never see this, uh, you know, in, in a in a mainstream news media, but the Guardian and the New York Times and I think the Washington Post, because they were copying each other's articles, but they oh, yeah. all came out and said uh, endotoxin is probably what's what's making you fat. It's not so much basically how much you exercise or the amount of calories in. If you're eating, which means really the calories in versus calories out, that article for me kind of did it, uh, did it in. It said, okay. It's not so much about that. It's about what you eat, right, uh, and how you metabolize it. Uh, so the resistant starches are starches that are basically resistant to hydrolysis, which mostly happens into the stomach and the small intestine, uh, which means they they arrive almost undigested to the colon, where the massive microbiome, which outnumbers our cells in at least, I think, 10 to 1, uh, something like that. There's like 10 yeah, copies of you <laughs> yeah, in, in, in your colon. Then they say, oh, yummy, give me those resistant starches. And they have the, the necessary enzymes um, and the acids to actually hydrolyze them into simpler carbs that can, they can actually consume and digest. However, every time you get bacter a bacterial colony food, the turnover of the bacterial cells into the colony is going to increase. And all of the gram-negative bacteria, there's gram-positive and gram-negative, have this component in their wall called endotoxin. So all the bacteria die, they rupture, and they spill it out into your colon. That, that amount of endotoxin basically can attach to your intestinal wall and just the presence of endotoxin, just physical adsor adsorption, AD, to the colonic wall can cause an inflammatory reaction, uh, which makes the cells of the colon produce a lot of nitric oxide and serotonin. Both of these are actually very inflammatory. Over time, if you keep producing this endotoxin and the colonic wall is chronically low-grade inflamed, you're going to compromise the gut barrier. And basically what, what's going to happen is some of the endotoxin will get into your bloodstream and it is known universally. Even if you pick up a mainstream doctor off the street, he'll tell you endotoxin in your bloodstream, major problem. We don't want that. We're using it, you know, to, to test for various, you know, immunosuppressive reactions, immunoactivating reactions. A lot of the adjuvant adjuvants in the vaccines are actually acting like endotoxin. They're triggering an inflammatory reaction to make to wake up your immune system and say, oh, pathogen. Start producing antibodies against the pathogen. But it's known that chronically doing that, right, you don't get in injected with a vaccine every day, and it's for a good reason. These adjuvants can actually wreak havoc. So they act the same way as endotoxin. And every time you're eating long-chain carbohydrates that are not capable of hydrolysis in the stomach by the, st by the, ga by the gastric acid, uh, which is mostly hydrochloric acid, then they reach the colon, the microbiome, and then, you know, they start feeding the bacteria there and causing you a chronic inflammatory reaction. To make things worse, as your metabolic rate declines, the amount of gastric acid you produce also declines. And the gastric acid is the primary barrier for bacteria present in the food and in you know, general surroundings in basically in the nose and the respiratory system from actually going through your digestive system and starting to colonize the small intestine. Ideally, the small intestine and the, and the stomach should be Close to as close to sterile as possible. Now you may have an H. pylori infection, which causes ulcers and whatnot, but that's that's relatively rare and can be treated with antibiotic. It's not the H. pylori does not really cause these metabolic disturbances that the regular you know bacteria that's in your colon that can cause. So once you start colonizing the small intestine, that compromises its digest its nutrient absorbent abilities. Um, so if you're so with advancing age or declining metabolic rate or increased inflammation, you produce even less acid. So more of these carbohydrates that you ingest, even the simple ones, may not even get properly digested and end up in the into the colon or even the small intestine now colonized by bacteria. And all of this process drives the chronic production of endotoxin every time you eat. So we, with each meal, whatever whatever does not get digested and absorbed in the stomach and the upper third of the small intestine becomes food for bacteria. And ultimately, that's a huge problem down the road for you health-wise. 
Yeah, so this is something we generally want to avoid. This is really one of the central tenets of your and Ray Pete's work is to avoid these for the most part. Now, I wonder if there's any uh, variability in there. I suspect there is because there are some people, well, we all have pretty different complex microbiomes. And for those who have a predominant uh, gram-positive one, like the lactobacillus, uh, and many, many others, of course, uh, and, and not many gram-negatives, would the impact of those resistant starches be different? Yes, it will be less, less, less harmful. Uh, uh, however, the problem is we always have at least some gram-negative bacteria. Uh, by okay. the way, the, the main benefit of taking these probiotic supplements, even though most of them get destroyed mm-hmm. by the by the yeah. stomach acid, but whatever makes it to your colon, basically the main benefit is simply, as you said, it's overcrowding and, and pushing out, mm-hmm. outcompeting the gram-negative bacteria by providing more of the gram-positive one, which does not result in the production of endotoxin. Yeah, there's, a, there's a term for that. It's called competitive inhibition. Exactly right. Yeah. So, so, and and I think the the fecal transplants that are that have recently started doing as well, uh, mm-hmm. they're actually doing the exact same thing. They're carefully selecting species of bacteria that are not endotoxin producing. You don't want to get somebody a fecal transplant with mostly E. coli that's going to probably kill them, right? Um, so yes, for people whose microbiome is composed predominantly of gram positive bacteria, they will probably have less problems with resistant starch. Now. However, they still produce endotoxin, and if at some point, actually it's not if, it's when, the gut barrier gets compromised, even the gram-positive bacteria can cause problems because they can translocate into the bloodstream. Um, people with rheumatoid arthritis, periodontal disease, uh, and even and even Alzheimer's disease ha- have been known to harbor uh, b- even intact bacteria or bacterial fragments, both po- gram-positive and gram-negative, which could have only come from the gastrointestinal tract. Mm. So, so basically, even the gram-positive bacteria in a, in in uh, on on a longer-term basis with a compromised gut barrier is probably not ideal. But is it preferable to having more gram-negative? Yes, of course it is. And also, gram-negative is is also more resistant to antibiotic treatment. So, really, you know, you you, you can be in a better state health-wise if you have more gram-positive than gram-negative. But ideally, you want to keep the total bacterial count down because. Outside of them uh, generating a few short-chain fatty acids and helping the conversion of vitamin K1 into K2, um, there really isn't that much of a known benefit to the bacteria in your in your microbiome. Um, there's There have been multiple studies with animals mostly where they sterilize completely their gastrointestinal tract, and these animals are impossible to get fat <laughs> unless you give them a pure, a pure, a pure PUFA diet. Only then they get fat. Yeah, but other than that... Yeah, they eat like five to 10 times the calories. And if they don't have a microbiome, they never get fat. Clearly not practical for us, right? Nobody wants to be an antibiotic the entire lifetime. So keeping the microbiome shifted towards gram positive and total bacterial count down is probably the, you know, the optimal, a practical approach for most people. Actually, that's one thing I want to neglected to mention in the intro is that you have a blog too. It's called HeyDute, H-A-I-D-U-T dot M-E. And I've known about this blog for a long time. Uh, three years at least. That's not that long, but long enough. But I, I, I first found it because I was passionate about linoleic acid, which is what really attracted and drew me to Ray Pete's work, and then you. Um, and I didn't realize. I mean, that's a, that's the central one of these central cores because we're we're going to get into PUFA. And we're talking about fats and carbs now and endotoxin and stuff, but but really PUFA is like the giant elephant in the room that just destroys everything and is destroying everything. So we've got to address that. But but interestingly, when you listen to your work and Ray's, I mean, I mean, it's certainly acknowledged, but it's a relatively minor component compared to the metabolic component. But anyway, that's a tangent. What I was re- really want to share about your blog is I I, I, I uh, wrote a paper on vitamin D that was published by Nutrients in October 2020. It was on COVID-19. Got a lot of flack, but it was a, it was like the second most downloaded study they ever published uh, on their site. So I wrote another review paper, this one on linoleic acid. And the reason I'm sharing this is that it's, it's actually in review now and I've got the feedback So from the reviewers. And so they asked for more uh, studies to support this. So guess where I went to find the studies? I went to your blog. I, it is so good. You can just type in the keywords and it comes up and it's just, it's just a wealth of information. So not only your podcast, but your blog, if you really want to dive deep because you know, and you shared with me your strategy for like finding these articles, guys. That's the problem. You got to find them. But it's just 
wonderful. And it's and it's the science supporting these concepts. This is not some harebrained scheme that Ray came up with. And they're just, yeah. you know, just it, there's there's so, solid, solid science documenting this stuff. So it's great. It's yeah, really there are great. groups around the world that have bent their careers on it. It's just they're not. So in, in other words, the gateway to, to the gateway keepers to the information mm-hmm. decide what the public gets to see. It yeah, just so happens that the dominant theory that the powers that be want us to know is that Pufu is great. Lowering cholesterol is great, right? Uh, you know, eating, uh, you know, a lot of uh, low carb, you know, high proof of that is great. Taking your statins is great. But all of these things, if you actually look down in, in, into the science, you'll find multiple established scientists all over the world, often not even knowing about each other's work, which to me is a great testament that that is actually true, right? If multiple independent researchers discover the same thing without knowing about each other, chances are that this is a part of the ob- objective truth. So all of these concepts that we're being told is like the God-given truth, almost all of them are heavily disputed if you know where to look. And they're disputed with evidence, right? This is experimental science. They provide evidence, and then you decide which way the evidence leans. Unfortunately, science is not should not be done by committee. It's not a consensus thing, which is what we've we've been hearing for the last, I think, what three years. Yeah, <laughs> no. for sure, for sure. So let's get back and finish up the carb component because that's such a central element of what this approach embraces. So you've got to be careful with your carbs. You made it abundantly clear that we want to avoid these starches. And what is, so what's another word for starch? Like grains, <laughs> That's exactly. most all grains, not all grains, most all grains. Uh, and you can have almost anything in small quantities, but you know, if you want to have grains regularly, that very first book, Georgie, you probably don't recall that I ever wrote was in 2004. It's called The No Grain Diet, <laughs> yep. which is probably a good strategy for most people. Not only do we have the issue with gluten, but you know, we've got this these resistant starches, and then the linoleic acid is really high too. So the PUFA. So um, why don't you? Give us some insights about the carbs and specifically as it relates to ripe fruit being the best. And are there any fruits that we should avoid specifically, like maybe kiwis or bananas? And uh, what about starches that are reheated? Like I know you're a fan of well-cooked potatoes. I mean, especially if they're boiled because potatoes can be high in oxalates. So the boiling will get out the oxalates. Um, But so well-cooked potatoes and you put them in the refrigerator and you reheat them. Because that's pretty well documented that can lead to resistant starch. So when you yeah. reheat it, is that going to be it? Or when you, you when you use it again after it's put in the fridge, is that going to be an issue? And then talk about rice as being, in my view, probably one of the only acceptable starches. Not brown rice, white rice. White rice. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but and that's actually one. I'm I'm I have like about eight ounces of white rice a day now. Tastes so good. <laughs> <laughs> So if you're eating starches, basically, that uh, especially the well-cooked starches that are not resistant starches, such as rice and, and, and pota- white rice and potatoes, and you have a decently functional pancreas and producing a decent amount of amylase, then I think it's okay. Starches are probably going to be uh, quickly digested, broken down into the simpler component, glucose, and then that quickly, quickly gets absorbed. And if you're healthy, metabolized or stored as glycogen. Um, however, if you're not producing a sufficient amount of amylase or there is like a condition such as SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, mm-hmm. uh, which which is secondary to low gastric acid production and many other uh, uh, causes. But if you get that, then you're basically going to get a situation where um, a, a portion of that starch will not get properly broken down and converted to glucose. So it will start passing through the gastrointestinal tract undigested. Now, depending on how compromised the gut barrier is, it, in, or in general, the barrier between the intestine and the portal vein, uh, you may get some undigested starch particles into your bloodstream. And that has been shown to be universally interpreted by the immune system as a as identical to a bacterial attack. So you, you actually uh, mount an allergic reaction first, and then second, there will be an inflammatory reaction uh, with phagocytes running around and trying to basically, by generating a lot of Oxidative stress, which we're going to talk about later, actually reductive, but that's how they're trying to get rid of these foreign invaders. Um, so yes, if your digestion is good and the starch is well cooked, then it's probably okay, and it's not much different than eating pure glucose. Um, now, other probably preferable sources of good, easily digestible carbohydrates mm-hmm. are ripe fruits. Uh, fruits that grow in tropical conditions um, are usually preferable, uh, not only because they they basically have a you know the, mostly the the, the 
a, a high fructose kind of component of, of 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 carbohydrates, but also they contain a lot of flavonoids that help to mm-hmm. uh, digest the sugars. So oranges are a great example. Uh, multiple studies have shown that if you give people a glass of water, warm water, with some sucrose in it, or or even pure glucose, or even starch dissolved in uh, in, in water, and if you give them a glass of orange juice with the equivalent amount of calories from carbohydrates in the glass of orange juice, the glass of orange juice invariably causes a much lower glycemic response. So there's something in the orange juice, probably more than one factor, that contributes to the proper metabolism of glucose. Um, and you know, some educated guesses are that the flavonoids apigenin and naringenin, um, which are uh, present in high amounts in, in, in orange juice, are contributing to actually the metabolism of glucose. And one mechanism through which they do that is they're actually lowering the NAD to the NADH ratio. So they're stimulating the pyruvic hydrogenase and they're helping you metabolize that glucose. Uh, while you, when you're consuming pure carbohydrate without any of the cofactors. They're lower. So they're increasing NAD plus? Yes, exactly. Yes. Oh, they're wow. acting like quinos. Yes. Apigenin and naringenin. Wow. And most of the other flavonoids are actually two to three electron acceptor molecules. So they can actually act as oxidants and actually help lo- increase the NAD and promote the oxidation of glucose. Now, is there a difference between tangerines and oranges? Uh, not so much in terms of the benefits that you're going to get, but the, some of the flavonoids, there's a flavonoid called tangeritin, <laughs> uh-huh. which if you look at it, it's actually kind of like apigenin and naringenin, but with, an, I think, an extra hydroxyl group. They're all they're all equally beneficial. Uh, it's just that now the science is saying that some of them may be more beneficial for specific conditions. I think tangeritin is, uh, has some very good clinical studies, including with humans, for dementia. Well, mm-hmm. apigenin and naringenin are known uh, and now have basically some very good evidence for estrogen receptor positive breast cancer uh, because both of these are actually known to act as anti-estrogens, both at the receptor level and also as aromatase inhibitors. So the, the, the naringenin and apigenin isn't as high in tangerines? It's not as high. It's, it's, it's the tangeritin that's higher, but it's a very structurally similar molecule. It's actually, okay. uh, tangeritin is basically apigenin with, I think, one or two extra hydroxyl groups. So it's really the same core. It's like a steroid. Mm-hmm. So it's like the difference between pregnenolone and progesterone really is just that one group, uh, one the difference in the position three. Pregnenolone has a hydroxyl group. Progesterone has, uh, you know, a ketone. That's pretty much the, you know, the structural difference between the different flavonoids and the different citrus fruits. Lemon has them as well, right? But the key here, you want to consume things that are not soury tasting. Why? Mm. Well, because a lot of the, the soury taste comes from citric acid. Mm. And even though citric acid is a component of the Krebs cycle, you're producing it naturally in significant amounts. If it builds up, it can lead you to two things. First of all, it's the precursor. Uh, it's actually the raw material for the enzyme fatty acid synthase. So you can actually mm. synthesize more fat from citric acid. And it's also known to activate dormant tumors. The mechanism is not exactly known, but if you have a tumor that's being kept in check by the immune system, there's plenty of such examples, especially with prostate cancer. Very slowly growing tumor for most men, it's not a problem unless it's the aggressive type. They usually die of old age before the cancer actually kills them. But it's been multiple studies have shown that if you take actual human tumor that's that's slowly growing, human prostate cancer, and you give it citric acid, it rapidly degenerates into a highly aggressive and metastatic cancer, uh, which obviously you don't want. So the sourish the sourish taste usually is an indication that the fruit is not ready to be eaten. Remember, the fruit wants to the plant produces the fruit with the idea that you it will be pleasant to you, you will want to eat more of it so that you can ingest the seeds, and since they, they passed undigested. Mm-hmm. Then, then you excrete them. If the fruit is not pleasant to taste, chances are the you know the plant has you know has, has put some things in there to make it unpalatable to prevent wasting of the seeds by the by the food being uh, by the fruit being eaten pr- prematurely. All right, I want to take off on the citrate for a, for a moment because I recall one of your previous podcasts, not with me, but I've heard you mention that, that when you were discussing, I think Ray's work, that citrate as a supplement, what you weren't fond of, primarily because um, it was, I think, uh, obtained from a, a bacteria, I think Aspergillus niger, and could be problematic. But I didn't, wasn't aware the citrate was was had a negative even from natural sources. So in general, are you uh, don't recommend supplements or mineral salts that that are citrates because nope, exactly. in, interesting. The citrates are really very useful for lowering oxalates. 
Yep. Uh, I mean, you know, they're they very common supplements, as you mentioned, calcium citrate, magnesium citrate. There's not, not really, any time I'm listening to you, I'm always learning new things. So that is that is really useful. I have a blog post on that. I'll, show, I'll send it to you. Citric acid and vitamin C, really, if they're in bulk, truly produced industrially in these metric ton quantities, it's probably not something you want to take as a supplement okay. on a regular that, basis. That, that, that's a game changer. Um, so what? So I interrupted you with the citrate question, but I, you were in the process of explaining other fruits and i'm wondering if you could touch on some fruits that other than the the citrate fruits and the the sour fruits which we should have there any others papaya the- mango i think even pineapple would be okay but the pineapple has a, very, a relatively high amount of serotonin in it preformed uh-huh. so it really depends on how, how your digestive system functions if you're wow. getting a loose stools from eating pineapple chances are your serotonin is either uh-huh. already higher than uh, optimal or the pineapple that you ate and the more ripe the pineapple the more serotonin it has then it's probably you, you've eaten too much so pineapple is not something to be to be eaten in liberal amounts i think just a few chunks is enough and okay. the biggest benefit that i that i see from pineapple is improving the digestion of protein if you look at these uh papain. supplements they have digestive exactly the papain it's they they contain papain because it's closer in structure to our protease protease enzymes that are produced by the by the pancreas um so yeah so uh, but again ripe tropical fruits so plums are, are probably okay are, bana- are bananas high in serotonin too uh, bananas are high in serotonin um, and also tryptophan as well. Uh, now, oh, depending so on how much, how, so you don't want to eat too much tryptophan. The only amino acid, not only precursor to serotonin, the only amino acid in nature that is directly carcinogenic. It's not a coincidence that that it's is rare in in nature. So if you try to eat it as food, it, even in our own bodies, tryptophan I think is like the 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 in terms of total amount. It's actually the the uh, it has the fewer amount. Of, we have the fewest amount of tryptophan compared to any other amino acid. Uh, there's a good reason for that. I mean, mostly for us, the, the 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 benefit of tryptophan is number one, synthesizing niacin, but we can take niacinamide for that, right? And number sure. two, synthesizing serotonin. But the amount of serotonin we need is really really very low. It really uh, it, it, most of the the biggest role of serotonin is gastrointestinal motility, um, and for everything else. Any increase, even minor increase of serotonin has been known since the 1920s to rapidly lead to fibrosis. The most successful antifibrotic drugs on the market currently are serotonin blockers, specifically yes. the- We're going to go, go deep on that in a future podcast with you because that's a big rabbit hole we can dive down. Because so many people are taking drugs, and especially I think it's like 40% of women over 40 are in SSRIs. So this is a big issue for a lot of people, and I don't want to dismiss it and, and go- Treated superficially, so we'll go do deeper on that. It's just the other one, but the other fruits, maybe you can hide watermelon. Watermelon's fine. Okay. Uh, melon is fine too. Uh, but again, it should be well. It should be ripe, right? A lot of yeah, people yeah, yeah. eat buy this uh, melon that basically was picked up when it was still uh, not fully ripe, and it basically got exposed to different chemicals. I think the I don't know what the not carbon dioxide, but they like they bathe they bathe the exactly, which is carcinogenic. So you yeah, definitely yeah. don't want oh, that. Really? I didn't know oh really? Oh yes. Oh yes. Ethylene dioxide is carcinogenic, um, and it, uh, residues remain on the fruit, right? And if the fruit has cracks, it will get into the fruit, and eventually you eat it. Um, so melon, watermelon, uh, grapes are great. Grapes are great. About seventy really? percent. Yeah, seventy percent of the grapes is fructose. Um, wow. Pears. Right the, are the also great. The classic one in, in keto, they say to avoid like a plate. <laughs> because right. of the high sugar, of course. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. why they're telling it. Yeah. But yeah, ripe grapes, I, I think, are, are pretty good. You should not be, um, if you swallow the them seeds. with the seeds, don't eat the seeds. Yeah, or at least don't chew them because yeah, the, yeah. the toxins get released. Most of the cyanide and other toxic things that are in the seed, remember, the plant wants to protect the seed. So the way that protects the seed is the biggest toxins are in the layer surrounding the seed to basically discourage animals from, from chewing and eating the seeds. Are they only birds? Even birds, when they eat the seeds, they pass them mostly undigested. That's kind of the nature's mechanism for spreading the plant. Um, so yeah, if you eat the grape with the seeds, don't chew them. Just yes. swallow them whole. I mean, not the grapes, but the, the seeds. Don't, uh, chew the grape, but don't chew the seeds, and then just swallow it. Wouldn't it be better just to spit them out? Uh, you can spit them out if you want. I mean, for I, I find some, when I recommend this to people, they're like, I don't want to look weird in a social gathering. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you, know so you don't think they're broken down because they're, they're not broken full, down. They're full of LA too. So. Exactly. They're not, yeah, they're full, but but if you don't chew them, if you don't destroy their okay. their, their, their quality, so their it, layer, they're relatively harmless. This is going to save me a lot of time. So is this also true for watermelon seeds? Yes. Okay, so you can just swallow the seed, just don't exactly. Chew. And, and uh, in, in that makes life so much easier. So much easier. 
even ruminant animals, when you feed them watermelon, they have really like the tricamer stomach with a lot of bacteria. Yeah, yeah. They are very good at processing things that we cannot process. Even they pass out the seeds undigested. Wow. So it's, I'll tell you, I, I've got uh, nine chickens, uh, and they that's watermelons with their favorite fruit. They just love it to pieces. <laughs> It's really good. It's got a lot of insoluble fiber. I mean, it's it's a really it's a, it's a good food to help digestion. So the good carbohydrates you quickly absorb, and the bulk, right? It's basically the insoluble fiber is going to contribute to contribute to improved uh, intestinal transit. It's going to reduce the microbiome, right? Uh, if there's a bacterial film, these are colonic colonies of bacteria attached to your colonic wall. That that uh, insoluble fiber will scrape it out literally, right? So it's a, it's a great uh, alternative to charcoal. Okay, what about um, just uh, we finished the fruits. I think we're pretty good about that. Uh, finishing up on the grains, what if because in the rapey community, there's a number of people like your, your friend Danny Roddy, who I think uses and recommends uh, oatmeal or oat bran. So, and I know a lot of people in the pea community are embracing that. So, I'm wondering what your views on it. Uh, I used to do great on oatmeal when I was younger. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, around 2009 and 10, when my health was really in the drain, I could not handle even like a small cup of oatmeal. It will give me, a, you know, it wasn't an, an so-called impacted colon or an intestinal blockage, but it would drastically slow my digestion uh, for several days and I couldn't eat it anymore. Um, and it uh, it's not as bad now, but I do not tolerate oatmeal anymore. So again, the test is try it. If it improves your digestion, which means if it doesn't give you gas, it increases frequency of bowel movements, it's probably a good thing for you. If it slows digestion down to the point of basically you skip a bowel movement a day, then it's probably not something you want not something you want to eat on a regular basis. Okay. And the other concern, it's relatively high in linoleic acid. I mean, you can get a few grams easily if you have a significant amount of oatmeal. Yeah, like like most seeds, the linoleic acid is mostly present in those seeds. So, you know, uh, seed oils, that's what they, they call them. Yeah, it's interesting. We've we been into this for a while now. We barely touched on UFAs and linoleic acid. I would say that they're there. Now, they're huge. We're just not discussing it because there's so many other things that, that, that elements for metabolism that you need to understand in addition to linoleic acid other than avoid it. And th- those rules are pretty simple. I've gone over a number of times in many different articles. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jory. Appreciate it.